According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Join me in the scriptures, if you would, this morning, Luke chapter 13. We're returning back to the Gospel of Luke. We have been uh, had a short side trip over to the Gospel of John and uh, returning back to Luke 13 and verse 22. Checking the status on my phone. If someone wants to call me real quick, find out if my phone's on. Let me turn this ringer off. How about that? All right. Episode number 20 in the last Judean and pre-in ministry of Jesus. Remember, the uh, there are so many events in the life of Christ as you harmonize the four gospel records and you take a sequence uh, uh, chronologically through the, the gospel record that we've uh, uh, broken it down into different sections or the harmony of the gospel study that we're using has broken it down into sections. Uh, this is near the end. We've already had the great Galilean ministry, which was the bulk of his life, was in the Galilean ministry. This is now the Aparian and Judean ministry that will kind of bridge the gap between all the messages given in, in Galilee and the Passion Week. So this is the final stretch uh, leading up to the cross. And uh, in fact, in our, a couple of episodes ago, we dealt with uh, the uh, Hanukkah, which is in the December time frame. So we're approaching April 3rd, uh, 33 AD, in terms of, uh, you know, to give it Julian dates or Gregorian dates. Um, we have, uh, in the last four months now, heading to the cross. And so as that approaches, more and more of the burden that Jesus has is to prepare his disciples for his departure. We have interesting expressions like here in Luke uh, that he's proceeding on his way to Jerusalem. In verse 22 there, Luke 13:22, 22, uh, he was passing through from one city and village to another, teaching and proceeding on his way to Jerusalem. And that idiom, on his way, we'll have to have a little bit of fun with uh, this morning, do some work with it, and recognize that um, it's not as imminent as we might think of it, um, and yet maybe it is. Do we use the, the fixin' to uh, terminology very frequently here in Texas? I got to Texas and found out everybody was fixin' to do a whole lot of things, and I never really understood that until I got here, and now I've adopted it myself. I do a lot of fixin' to activities from time to time. Well, Jesus was fixing to go to Jerusalem. He knows that this is now the winter time frame. He knows that next spring, Nisan 14 is coming, the next Passover. He has uh, had at least three and a half or four, uh, probably five Passovers in the course of his ministry, and he knows the next one is it. He is approaching his work of atonement. And so uh, his messages get very pointed. The ministry gets very sharp even to the point where he starts losing followers. He's not getting popular when he's talking about this. And even his most intimate, Peter, tries to set him aside and say, oh, no, no, God forbid it, over my dead body kind of thing. And uh, <laughs> Jesus says, no, no, it's my dead body. See, that's going to accomplish your salvation. So anyway, this is what we're looking at. Luke 13:22. Before we begin, though, let's take a moment for silent prayer to make sure as believer priests we are filled with the Holy Spirit and equipped to handle spiritual truth. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we come before you this morning once again 
thankful, rejoicing, unworthy. Father, uh, we don't deserve to be here, and yet by Your grace, You've redeemed us. By Your grace, You've provided a lampstand for the Word of God to be taught, line upon line, precept upon precept. And Father, we want to be obedient to the command. Uh, You expect each believer priest to be diligent, to present ourselves approved to You, workmen needing not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the Word of Truth. As we study the Word of Truth this morning, open the eyes of our understanding, give us ears to hear. Father, bless us through the ministry of Your Word on this day. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, let's at least read through the verses, since this is our first approach to it. Um, starting in verse 22 and going down to the end of the chapter. So he was passing through from one city and village to another, teaching and proceeding on his way to Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, there are just are there just a few who are being saved. And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Once the head of the house gets up and shuts the door and you begin to stand outside and knock on the door saying, Lord, open up to us. Then he will answer and say to you, I do not know where you are from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. And he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you are from. Depart from me, all you evildoers. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves being thrown out. And they will come from the east and west and from the north and south and will recline at the table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first and some are first who will be last. That's the first division. There's Really, you can break this episode down into two halves and that's the first half. And then after a you know, a halftime show with a marching band. We'll come back for the second half in verses 31 and following. Let's look at it. Just at that time, some Pharisees approached, saying to him, Go away, leave here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, Go and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I reach my goal. Nevertheless, I must journey on today and tomorrow and the next day, for it cannot be that a prophet would perish outside of Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together, just as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not have it. Behold, your house is left to you desolate, and I say to you, you will not see me until the time comes when you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. All right. Well, that's a lot to cover, isn't it? (laughs) We won't get that far today. I'll tell you that. All right. We're going to focus starting today on the first half of this episode. I think uh, if this was uh, of my own authorship, I would have broken this down into two episodes and and uh, been happy to do so. But as it were, I didn't invent this uh, harmony and I'm adapting one that uh, and when you adapt somebody else's work, you're kind of stuck with the arrangement they did. But in any event. Backing up to verse 22 then. He's on the way to Jerusalem. So let's understand that first of all. Uh, We'll give you really three points of study in this episode. The first one of which, Jesus' journey to Jerusalem 
has several iterations in the Gospel of Luke. This gets repeated a number of times throughout this Gospel. In fact, it's a feature of Luke's writing style. It's a feature of Luke's uh, composition. Sometimes it's called the travelogue. The Luke, uh, the historian, was giving a, a travelogue or a, a journal of his journey to Jerusalem. And it didn't start here in chapter 13. In fact, backing all the way up to chapter 9... We had an episode some time back as he was departing um, Galilee and getting ready to head into the last Judean and Perean ministry. Luke 9, verses 51 and 53, you might recall. And here we are already now 20 episodes into this uh, last Judean and Perean ministry. So this, uh, this language in Luke started when he was leaving Galilee and starting this uh, segment of his of his career and now 20 episodes later he's still on his way he's still on his way in fact it's a feature of luke's composition as i said that he is on his way to jerusalem and i think he's mentally been on his way to jerusalem ever since the last passover the passover he skipped the passover he did not go to jerusalem for when he went to the eastern side of the sea of galilee and went up on the mountain and fed the five thousand he was skipping passover and that was extraordinary uh, it's the first one ever recorded that he didn't attend in Jerusalem. See, Passover being one of the pilgrimage feasts. The males were expected to go to Jerusalem and bring a sacrifice to the Lord there. Well, he didn't go the last season. And I think from that point on, for this final year on earth, he has been mentally on his way to Jerusalem. So we see it here, Luke 9:51. When the days were approaching for his ascension, he was determined to go to Jerusalem. And I think the the uh, language there is one of thinking. It's a mental attitude expression. They're determined to go to Jerusalem. So he didn't, uh, you know, pack his bags and, and hop on the nearest horse and gallop straight away there. He is on the way there. Maybe we're trapped by our modern uh, scales of time or transportation or communication and things of that nature. And the ancient world recognized that Travels of any significant distance took weeks or months or even years in terms of the planning and the logistics and the arrangements and all the rest. So he is determined to go to Jerusalem and he's going to spend the next several months getting there. Of course, he won't get there too soon. Why not? Passover is the day of the father's timing for him to accomplish that work as the Lamb of God. All right, so this is the episode here in Luke 9 where he sends messengers on ahead of him and uh, they don't receive the welcome that they expected and uh, because it's a Samaritan village and the Samaritans and the Jews were very hostile to each other. And so uh, James and John, uh, of course, sons of thunder, remember this episode? They uh, responded to the insult with uh, a little bit of a grace deficiency, you might say. <laughs> and they said, Lord... Do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? That's obviously the grace response anytime you are insulted or uh, anything of the sort. See, So, yes, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, but there's still work to be done in training these disciples and preparing them to be apostles for the church age once uh, his ministry here is complete. So that's the first mention. Second mention is our one here in Luke 13:22, where he's on his way to Jerusalem. But you'll note that he's still lingering in the Prean region. He's on his way to Jerusalem, but he's still lingering over here on the eastern shore of the Jordan River. So uh, at some point, you have to, um, you know, understand what he's doing, why the delays are taking place, what he's hoping to accomplish in the meantime. 
Next time it'll be mentioned is over in chapter 17. Luke 17. And this is several more episodes later in, uh, in our chronology. Reference being in uh, 1711. While he was on his way to Jerusalem, he was passing between Samaria and Galilee. And so the geography is kind of interesting because he seems to be going um, in circles, seems to be going uh, out of his way, seems to be taking uh, uh, some side trips here and there in different places. So I think we'll have some more fun with this and we'll do some uh, additional geography work on it. But it is uh, at least something to, to ponder. If Christ had this attitude, do we have an application to make? See, in terms of where are we going and what are we doing? And are we thinking uh, down the road as well as immediate? Are we thinking, uh, for example, uh, Cliff and Terry, we're praying for them and their placement. And, and where are they going? See, they're on their way somewhere. They just don't know where. Okay. Candidating in different places, looking for, uh, you know, he's a pastor looking for a church. There's no shortage of churches looking for a pastor. So he's, uh, he's on his way. Well, when's he going to get there? I think there's a lot of application to be made with respect to this. Or Casey and Fallon, same way. They're on their way to the mission field, perhaps. Well, along the way, while they're on the way, there's work to be done. There's lessons to be learned. There's ministry to accomplish. In fact, the, uh, the training ground there proves whether the, uh, the, the preparation's complete or not. See, Anyway, we'll have some more, I think, more uh, pertinent and, and vivid illustrations here coming up. So he's on his way, and there's lessons to be learned there, and so we'll deal with that over in chapter 17. Again, chapter 18, verse 31. He took the twelve aside. And so um, this is interesting because um, I don't want to get sidetracked and teach this whole chapter here, but Peter starts to develop a, a bit of a... Uh, uh, selfishness or a bit of an attitude check and the Lord helps him to put it in perspective. Um, and uh, Peter says in verse 28, Behold, we've left our homes and followed you. And he said, Truly I say to you, there was no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times as much and more in the age to come eternal life. And then he takes the twelve aside and begins to tell them, Behold, we are going to Jerusalem, and all the things which are written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. We're on the way. We're on the way. We're on the way. We're on the way. It's almost like, uh, do you ever see uh, James Gardner and the uh, Support Your Local Sheriff? Right? Remember that? And all through the movie, from beginning to end, he's just passing through on his way to Australia, you know. And it just kind of becomes comical. You know, he never does get to Australia. I'll give that away. But, you know, see the movie yourself. It's worth it. Well, in that movie, it's played for gags. It's played for a joke. He's just on his way to Australia. See, well, there's something more significant happening here. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. He is dedicated to arriving in Jerusalem at the right time. And he cannot actually enter until two things take place. He has to enter on Palm Monday. He has to enter on, you call it Palm Sunday, that's all right. 
we'll fix your chronology here for you when we get there. But he has to enter on Palm Monday. He has to enter on Nisan 10. The 10th of Nisan is when the Passover lamb is selected. And it's four days ahead of the, the death of the Passover, or the death of the Passover lamb. And so the timing there is complete. Also, the timing has to be complete for the 69 weeks of Daniel chapter 9. That those 69 weeks have to be complete. He has to make his triumphal entry humble, riding on a colt with the children singing hosannas and the palm branches and all of that. He has to make that triumphal entry on the precise day. So he's on his way and uh, don't don't get there too early don't get there too late it's a wonderful encouragement on the plan of god we we um <laughs> we're so finite we get in a rush we get uh limited in our view let's uh back up a little bit and see what the lord's doing all right the last references then in chapter 1831 and then 1911 and 1928 all right we covered 1831 already 1911 while they were listening to these things, Jesus went on to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem. And they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. Now, here's another element of it, right? Because he keeps saying, we're going to Jerusalem, we're going to Jerusalem, we're going to Jerusalem. And along with that, he keeps saying, I'm going to die, I'm going to die, I'm going to die. Are they hearing that? No, they just assume, hey, we're going to Jerusalem, we're taking the throne. Here comes the kingdom. And he's saying, goodness, how can he be saying one thing and they're hearing just the opposite, right? Well, human nature. Once again, people hear what they want to hear. They hear what they're hoping to hear. They, and they tune out the things that aren't pleasant, the things that aren't consistent or compatible with their prejudices. So, uh, so they're supposing, hey, the kingdom of God is going to appear immediately. He has to tell them a story and uh, gives them some doctrine pertaining to that. And then finally, in verse 28, same chapter, after he said these things, he was going on ahead going up to Jerusalem. And he gets as far as uh, Mount Olive, uh, Mount of Olives there, and he stays at a village, and uh, he's getting ready now for his uh, appropriate entry. All right, so there's the travel log. A little bit of a survey there on the travel log of Luke. Now let's get to the question that's asked. Jesus is asked a question regarding the relative numbers. Another typical human uh, question. We get wrapped up over the numbers. And why are they so low? Why are they so low? Jesus has asked a question regarding the relative numbers of folks being saved. Is it only a few that are being saved? In verse 23, someone said to him, Lord, are there just a few who are being saved? Why is this ministry so small? Why aren't there more people that are hungry for Bible teaching? Why are there more people that are following after uh, the, a teacher who can give them the words of eternal life? Uh, something has to be wrong or it would be bigger. That's human viewpoint. In a lot of respects, it's American commercialism that colors our thinking because bigger is always better. More is always a sign of success, isn't it? Not in God's timetable. What are you talking about? God uh, is opposed to the proud, gives grace to the humble. In many respects, the, uh, the lesser number gives God the greater glory. That's why when Gideon's army was too big, he said, you've got to shrink that thing down. A lot of other illustrations as well. Why did Jesus only have 12 disciples? Why didn't he have, uh, you know, 70? Why didn't he have 100? Why didn't he have 1,000? You know, there's 144,000 Jewish evangelists in the tribulation. Why did Jesus make do with 12? Anyway, we have these why questions and what ifs and things of that nature. Again, it's just our humanity that 
does not necessarily line up with God's way of thinking. God's as, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. But that's their question. Are there only a few being saved? And we, uh, <laughs> we have similar ideas ourselves. We see uh, a culture not exactly dazzled by the Word of God. We see a, a society that's uh, abandoning the Christian heritage. We see diminished uh, uh, all-time low uh, in seminaries today of, of men that are enrolling and headed towards the, uh, the ministry. And, uh, and so it's normal. Human beings might just look at that and say, well, What's going on? What a failure. Why, why is the church losing? What's going on? See, and uh, I always try to, sometimes I use shocking language to uh, orient people to their, uh, what they're really saying. And uh, every time they grumble and gripe and talk about how discouraged they are, because it just seems that everything's just going wrong, say, yeah, isn't that something? The head of the church, Jesus Christ, is just a total loser in what he's doing here in the church age. Ooh, shock, shock, you know. <laughs> You're calling Jesus a loser? Is this? Well, see, what they're not saying is, well, is he head of the church or is he not head of the church? Is he accomplishing the Father's good pleasure or not accomplishing the Father's good pleasure? And if you're grumbling about the state of Christianity in the world today, then who are you really grumbling against? And why are you so shocked that the, the Bible's so true when it says in the last days difficult times will come? Well, hello? You try to act contrary to Scripture? Of course, things are going to get darker in the days ahead. Absolutely, they're going to get darker. When the Son of Man returns, will he find faith on the earth? Is the hypothetical question there, a rhetorical question. And, uh, and I wonder sometimes. All right. Now, we're going to have to deal with this, and we're going to be careful with some of these terms. Uh, but look at his answer. He doesn't give them numbers, and he doesn't respond directly. But he repeats a message he'd given earlier. And we'll, uh, we'll evaluate that. But there's language that's used here that, um, depending on uh, your theological background or depending upon uh, your own personal axes to grind and whatnot, uh, you may not be comfy with some of the expressions that he uses. All right, so I don't know how to comfort you in that other than to just simply uh, say, uh, if, if this violates your theology, then uh, evaluate why. And ask yourself if uh, if the Lord maybe uh, knew what he was talking about here in these verses. All right, so Lord, are there just a few who are being saved? And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. We're going to tear that verse apart just a little bit as we break it down. But understand, sub point A. Are there a few who are being saved? That's the question. Are there a few? Are we in a stage now where all we can expect is a remnant? Will we ever see great numbers again? Will we ever see another revival? Will we ever see another great awakening in our nation, for example? We've had, you know, if you understand church history, or the, the Christian heritage of, of our nation, and you, you examine the great awakening or the second great awakening or different revivals that took place or even uh, a fundamental revival when when uh, bible churches kind of stood up and and pushed back against the spread of liberalism in some respects or maybe um you know, back in the heyday of, of doctrinal churches, back in the 60s and 70s when believers were coming to church five days a week, six days a week, and, and so forth. And you wonder, will we ever see a, a great heyday like that again? All right. Well, maybe. Probably not. It's not our business. Our business is simply to stay faithful 
Keep learning, keep growing, accomplish what Jesus has for us to do. See, we are simply individuals. <laughs> Great big movements and national endeavors and worldwide ministries and all kinds of things. That's not our realm. God will handle that. It's not our realm. Now, what, what sparked this question? It was either a couple of things, either a previous message that had been hankering away at their thinking and they finally just said, you know, can I clarify what you're talking about there? Or... Uh, looking at present dwindling numbers and growing discouragement, see, or both. This question was evidently in response to an earlier message, the Sermon on the Mount in particular, Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Go ahead and turn there. Or in view of his current dwindling popularity, or both. All right, Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14. We've discussed this a number of times. It was a very lengthy message recorded here in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, a three-chapter stretch of the Gospel of Matthew. And yet there are elements of this overall sermon. It's, it's almost a mislabel to call it the sermon, singular, on the mount, because it was a series of messages over evidently a number of days or weeks or what have you. But in any event, there were components of this message that are also sprinkled throughout other Gospel records later on in the ministry, throughout the Galilean ministry, throughout the Judean and Prean ministry. See, some of it even comes up in the Passion Week again, a review back to what was spoken of here, an earlier message, back on the Sermon on the Mount series. You know, they didn't have the podcasting and the Twitter feeds and all the other things. All right. So... Looking back to Matthew 7 here, the, um, yeah, there's a pretty wide context for this. Let's just narrow the scope down to verses 13 and 14 then. Enter through the narrow gate. Again, enter is a command, it's an imperative, it's expected volitionally to be obeyed. Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. So two uh, venues are here presented, two entrance ways. All right. One is the proper entrance, and the other is the wrong entrance. And the wrong entrance is the one that's wide and glorious, and all kinds of people are, are flocking that direction. But the proper gate, the one that leads to life, is narrow. And that's described here. For the gate is small. And the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. Interesting, there's both a gate and a way. In other words, the gate might be the entrance, might be the portal, but once you're through the gate, what, what follows then? A continued way to follow that's very narrow. In other words, we are following the Lord our God. We're not turning to the right. We're not turning to the left. We are on the narrow, or the straight and narrow, as it were, the Christian way of life. And it's uh, it's a... Uh, a wonderful delight. It's a great way to live. The uh, the unregenerate mind, of course, rebels against it. They think it's it's a, it's a mark against them, or it's it's a, it's a hampering of their freedom, and 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 uh, they just uh, the unregenerate mind thinks it's a terrible thing. Oh my goodness, you Christians just never have any fun, and you can't do what you want to do, and you just. Well, no, I've been bought with a price. I belong to the one who bought me. He has a course for my life, and has a course for my blessing. Why would I want to pick out another course? <laughs> Why do I want to depart from what he has for me? What he has for me is to glorify Christ and for my, for my blessing. I want, to, I want to leave that for some reason? Why? Any event. There's a whole lot of doctrine in this, but simply looking at it, uh, two ways 
The straight and narrow is what we want to pursue. The uh, the wide and broad that leads to destruction leads to destruction. Remember, uh, all of the language that pertains to destruction, apaleia, apalumi, it's the language of hell, it's the language of the lake of fire, it's the language of uh, Abaddon, the angel of the abyss, he is the destroyer. Um, it's the it's the road to hell, and there it is. And how many are on that road? Most. Okay, most. This passage doesn't give us a ratio, doesn't give us a number, but it's a lot more than the remnant that is coming to faith in Christ through, uh, you know, to eternal life through faith in Christ. Now, um, hmm. does that not reconcile with their way of thinking? No. Does it not reconcile with our way of thinking? A lot of times, no. Again, we get this idea, particularly if you're in a uh, dominion theology mindset or a replacement theology mindset or some kind of thing that thinks that we're bringing in the kingdom through our uh, evangelism, through our world, uh, you know, we're salt and light, we're transforming the world and we're going to bring the kingdom in and hand it to Jesus when he gets here. Well, verses like this stand opposed to that. And I think a lot of believers face heartache because they're not seeing this Christian world. They're not seeing this millennium that they're uh, trying to bring about. They see things getting worse. All right, so this is the question that they ask. Now, the narrow door was spoken of before, and the command was given to enter, but this time the imperative is to strive. Strive. And I don't say it's a contrast, or I don't say it's a contradiction. I think it is a contrast. That the the imperative is strengthened more so than just simply enter. Now it's strive to enter. And why does he change that terminology? Why does he change it here as the, as the cross is approaching when it was not quite so forceful uh, earlier on in uh, the Sermon on the Mount time frame? So getting back now to Luke 13, strive to enter through the narrow door. So point B, if you're keeping the outline and taking your own notes, the narrow door was spoken of before. We just looked at it in Matthew 7. But this time the imperative is to strive. And the verb agonizomai, you've seen it before in basic doctrinal studies, just not in this context. Again, this may not be language you're comfy with, but the Lord used it. Agonizomai. Agonizomai. A-G-O-N-I-Z-O-M-A-I. I'm still trying to learn. I'm I'm working on the transliterations, and you gotta learn your keystrokes for Unicode characters and, and things. There, I, I need to start putting long uh, marks like right there, so you can identify the difference between an omega and an omicron. That the first O is a long O, the second O is the short O. So it's uh, A G O, the omega long O, N I Z O, short O omicron M A I. In any event. 75 is the Strong's Index number. If you do your word studies with the Strong's Exhaustive Concordance, Agonizomai is number 75. It's used seven times in the New Testament. Not normally in an evangelism context. Not normally in an application that centers on gospel information, on entering into the kingdom. See. Uh, in fact, we taught it in basic doctrinal studies as the doctrine of Angelic conflict, the doctrine of conflict. Agonizomai is the struggle. So we get our English word agony, right? Agonizomai. You agonize. Oh my. Right? Agonizomai. Number 75. Catch that? 
Okay, it's corny, but it helps you remember, right? Well, think about it, though. Christians that kind of bought into a, a bill of goods or whatever, and they were just told, you know, they were sold a, a rosy-eyed glasses kind of view of Christianity. Just, you know, come to Jesus and everything's wonderful. You know, you have a better marriage, you have a better family, no more problems, no, you know, all your bills get paid, and everything's just great. Come to Jesus, no more problems. It's horrible. It's a great disservice to a young believer in Christ. Get saved and become fully engaged in the angelic conflict and the world you're delivered out of will hate you. So accept Christ and uh, find yourself with more problems. But that's okay. They're the good kind of problems. All right. As I said, um, we don't normally put agonizomai into an evangelism context. This passage, however, does. And I find that to be noteworthy. Very noteworthy. And we'll see in a moment here another element that gets even more noteworthy. But the other passages that use agonies in mind, most of them are Pauline. Paul loved this word. Paul was a man of conflict, and, and he uh, developed it in many of his epistles. The one other use in the Gospels is John 18.36. John 18.36. Where uh, standing before Pilate, and Pilate's trying to figure out if he's a king or not, or what's going on. And, and uh, Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, remember what he said? What he told Pilate, if my kingdom was of this world, then my servants would be agonizomai. My servants would be fighting. My servants would be struggling. My servants would be uh, delivering me from, you know, from this. It's, it's a forceful word. It's a word of conflict. It's a word of open warfare. If that's, if the context expects it, see, my servants would be agonizomaiing, fighting, that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. See, And uh, we'll deal with that. Because now that the kingdom of heaven has been rejected, now that the king has been rejected, and Israel is rejecting their king, he's uh, already prepared them when he gave them the uh, parables of the kingdom in Matthew 13 for the mystery of the kingdom. What happens when a rejected kingdom goes from an anticipated imminent arrival to a mystery state where the kingdom of heaven departs from this realm for the uh, given period of time until such time as it can be revealed on the earth. It's a mystery kingdom. I think we have a good... Uh, of course, perspective on it, because that's where we are. We're, we're a heavenly citizenship. We're a heavenly people. And we, we have no issue with the kingdom of heaven being heavenly presently until the king comes back at second advent. But, boy, when he was speaking these things, that was, that was revolutionary. It was just uh, almost insane. Because the whole body of Old Testament literature was talking about the kingdom here, the kingdom on earth, and conquering the Gentiles and ruling this place, and land-grant boundaries and all kinds of earthly uh, sphere. So when he starts talking about mystery state and kingdom of heaven, my kingdom is not of this world and, and I'm going where you cannot go and things like that was just uh, hard for them to chew on. So we'll, uh, we'll deal with that coming up. Anyway, that's the only other place in the Gospels where agonizomai occurs. In Paul's writings, we have the other uses. 1 Corinthians 9.25 where he's uh, giving the metaphor for the Christian way of life, that um, 
Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Remember, Corinth was the location for the the Isthmus Games, the original Greek Olympic Games, and they held them here in Corinth. And so what better illustration to use than the illustration of the Olympic Games? And so he uses them and says, well, guess what? You know, you have this race and you got one winner. See, obviously back then they didn't buy into the modern liberalism view of, well, you know, everybody's a winner and we don't want to, we don't want the losers to feel like they're losers. So, you know, they've got to build up their self-esteem and, and everyone participates. No, there's a winner and there are losers in a race. The contrast then with the Christian way of life in verse 26, therefore I run in such a way as not without aim, I box in such a way as not beating the air. But verse um, 25 is when the verb comes and it competes in the games. Everyone who agonizes, everyone who struggles, everyone who competes doesn't have to be a military competition, doesn't have to be a military warfare with weapons. It is any struggle where there is an opponent who has to be overcome. That if you're going to win, you're going to defeat somebody. All right? Understand that. It is a, it is a um, competitive struggle. Competitive struggle. All right. Colossians 1.29. And so that's not, is that salvation right there? No. That's running with endurance the race set before you. That's the Christian way of life after you're saved. You're running your course. Colossians 1.29. And Paul describes his own ministry, proclaiming Christ, admonishing every man, teaching every man with all wisdom, so that we may present every man complete in Christ. Pastors ought to be diligent so that their flock is complete in Christ, presented with full reward. I want to be proud of my flock at the judgment seat of Christ. I want to see every believer stand there and receive gold and silver and precious stones and rewards and well done, good and faithful servant. I don't want to stand there. Remember, pastors give an account, Hebrews 13 says. I don't want to stand there and watch my sheep being presented and uh, see loser after loser after loser after loser after loser and then hang my head and think, well, what did I do all that time? We proclaim him, admonishing every man, teaching every man with all wisdom, so that we may present every man complete in Christ. Presentation. Now, each one of us has to present ourselves, workmen needing not to be ashamed. Each one of us will give an account of ourselves to God, but this passage speaks of the pastors giving a presentation as well. Say, Jesus Christ, may I present to you? Let me introduce you here. And then it goes on, for this purpose, I also labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. So you've got the labor to the point of exhaustion combined with the agonies of my struggle. There is a competitive struggle with an opponent to be defeated. And yet you can't do it in your own human effort. You've got to use the uh, empowerment he provides, the Holy Spirit within you. Same book over to chapter 4, verse 12. So you didn't know I was going to be presenting you before the judgment seat of Christ, did you? Colossians 4.12 Epaphras, who is one of your number, a bond slave of Jesus Christ, sends you his greetings, always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers. Do you understand how powerful a prayer ministry can be? You may not have a uh, evangelism ministry or a teaching ministry, or, uh, but you can enter into a prayer ministry. 
the number of prayer meetings that we have each week, prayer ministry at home, prayer ministry with your family, prayer ministry at church, prayer ministry all over the place. And here's Epaphras with a thriving prayer ministry that you may stand perfect and fully assured in all the will of God. And the main focus on intercessory prayer ministry is just that, the spiritual walk, the spiritual walk. I think sometimes we get so distracted by, well, you know, this health issue, that financial issue, this marriage problem, that employment problem, and blah, blah, blah. All right? I'm not telling you don't pray for those things. I'm just saying put those things in perspective. Pray for the race to be run, the spiritual fruit to be born, for the ministry to be fulfilled, that they might be standing complete at the judgment seat of Christ. And if there is a health issue in, in the way, then put it in its proper context. Say, Father, they've got a health struggle going on right now. Help them to uh, put that in perspective, that they might learn the surpassing value of the grace while we have this treasure in earthen vessels. Don't allow the discouragement of the health test cause them to lose their focus on the spiritual realities of the work they're doing for Jesus Christ. See, don't let their financial struggles distract them from the treasure they're laying up in heaven. See, as far as financial, I mean, God knows you need these things. He knows you need employment. He knows you need a place to live. He knows you need food to eat. They're not the test. I think we, we miss what the test is. The, the health issues, marriage issues, financial issues, all of that, every earthly matter is not the test. It's the context in which the real spiritual test is being evaluated. Yeah, we'll deal with that a little bit more coming up as well. So I think when we get to the thorn in the flesh passage of, of 2 Corinthians, we're going to learn the real issue is not the external circumstances we're facing. Circumstances and details of life are just that. They're context for how our spiritual life is being evaluated. Say, all right, yeah, you love Jesus, you serve Jesus, you minister when things are great. What are you doing when things get rough? Say, the, the circumstances aren't the test. They're the conditions for the test. All right. Well, that wasn't in my notes, but that's just extra credit, no charge. Um, Epaphras, there's our example. And look at the pastoral epistles, 1 Timothy 4.10, 6.12, and 2 Timothy 4.7. Here again, we have warfare in view. Warfare. Paul says, I have fought the good fight. I have warred the good warfare. It is for this we labor and strive because we have fixed our hope on the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. If you're ever debating a limited atonement kind of person that thinks that uh, he's not the Savior of everybody, that's a good verse to use. He's the Savior of all men, especially of believers. How could he be a Savior of unbelievers? Well, he makes the provision for their salvation when he dies for their sins on the cross. All right. But it is for this that we labor and strive because we fixed our hope on the living God. Laboring and striving. Agonizomai. It's a constant struggle. It is an adversarial struggle against an opponent. And sometimes, you want to know who the biggest opponent is? Ourselves. You got it. That's right. I am my biggest stumbling block in the Christian way of life. Me. My flesh, my selfishness, my attitude. And thank God he's working on that. He's transforming that because that's, uh, that's just got to go. 6.12, 1 Timothy 
Verse 11 says, Flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. And there you got the verb with a cognate noun. Agonizomai, the good agony. Fight the good fight. War the good warfare. Struggle the good struggle. Or fight the good fight. English, that gives you a verb and a noun right there. Agonizomai, the good agone. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Again, that's an admonition to Timothy to finish his course. He's not urging Timothy to get saved. He's urging Timothy to work out his salvation with fear and trembling, to, uh, to live his life consistent with the salvation he's already had. See, what I'm highlighting is how unusual, going all the way back now to Luke 13, we've got one more to look at, but before we go back to Luke 13, to recognize how powerful this is, that he says, strive to enter the narrow gate. And it's a term that the bulk of the New Testament is going to use in a post-salvation way for believers who are going to strive to, uh, to run their course and to receive full reward. But here he, Jesus uses the language to, in, uh, in an evangelism application, strive to enter the narrow gate. What's the opponent that has to be overcome then? How much struggle is it to, as an unbeliever to, to get saved? We'll deal with that. Because I think it's, uh, I think it's uh, an interesting expression and one we have to pay attention to. In, uh, in, and it might be good to be sensitive to that when you are uh, witnessing to somebody and you start to recognize that, you know what? They're under a lot of struggle right here, right now. They're under conviction. And that's one element of the battle. But then there are other competing elements that they're battling with. What is it that's preventing you right now from placing your faith in, in Christ? It's a good question. Evangel instructs and trains their people to ask that question. Is there anything right now preventing you from placing your faith in Christ? In some cases, yeah, there's uh, there's a lot preventing me. And, uh, and it's interesting if people are honest enough to admit what it is that's preventing them. Sometimes maybe they don't want to talk about it. All right, the last one then is 2 Timothy 4.7. Timothy 4.7. I had a man I worked with one time, Sheriff's Department, and he uh, he was pretty honest with me. He said, you know, that Bible and that Christianity thing and, and, and that, uh, you know, if I started living according to that, then I'd have to quit shacking up with my girlfriend. <laughs> you know, your Bible does, tells me I'm wrong for, for my uh, fornication and, and the things I'm doing there. So, uh, well, it got pretty obvious at that point. What was hindering him? <laughs> I think it hinders a lot of folks. I think there's a lot of atheists out there that aren't really atheists, but they can claim it because that soothes their conscience. If there is no God, then they're not guilty before him. See, they don't have to live by his rules. If they deny that he exists. All right, the last use of 2 Timothy 4 7. Paul's last will and testament. In fact, you wonder was this his, uh, was this his uh, epitaph? Was this on his tombstone? I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. Past completed action, present ongoing results. His life is over. He is ready for glory. And he will. He, this is the last composition he makes before Caesar chops off his head. In the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness. Um, in fact, let me read the rest of that. There's a good promise in here. The crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, not only to me, but also on all who have loved his appearing. Loved his appearing. 
the parousia, the appearance, the glorious return of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's why I teach the rapture so much. That's why I try to get you guys so uh, excited about it. That's why we end our Bible class with here, there, or in the air. Today we might hear a trumpet. Today might be the day. Isn't that great? I want it to be today. I'm sick of this darkness. You know? And if you love His appearing, if you have the attitude that is eager for the return of Christ, if you have that love, I don't remember there if it's, I think it's agape, might be phileo, but anyway, that, that allegiance and that expectation, it's the, it's the blessed hope for believers. It breaks my heart that fewer and fewer churches are teaching the rapture anymore. It's just sad. Because this is a pretty easy award to get, Right? You know, there's other awards I probably won't deserve and won't earn and won't attain to. And there, I'm sure there's tons of awards I've thrown away. But this is one I'm not throwing this one away. This one's just too easy to get. <laughs> Man, sign me up for that one. You know, it's like you're enrolling in college and you want to you know, grab those credits that are as easy, easy to get. Yeah, give me that one. Give me that one. Right. Took a typing class one time and I scored enough to get a, an A. It was typing one. But my speed was fast enough to get an A in typing three. Well, duh. You know, that's a no-brainer. I'm going to sign me up for class two and class three in the next couple of sessions. It's obvious. You know, those are easy credits. <laughs> I didn't quite get away with it, though, because the instructor was smarter than me and found ways to teach me other things. All right. Well, back to Luke 13, then. Let's... Um, Understand, what is the struggle in entering the narrow gate? What's so hard about getting saved? That getting saved is easy. You don't do anything. It's the greatest gift. God saves you. Well, on the divine side of things, yes. God saves you. And His sovereignty calls you. And His, uh, his uh, work makes it happen. There's nothing you do to earn it. But there is something you must do to receive it. And that's the uh, back to the question, what must I do to be saved? There's two answers to that. What must you do to earn it? Nothing whatsoever. You cannot earn it. But what must you do to receive it? By grace through faith. You must believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. So the idea of what you must do is where the struggle comes in. Because the element of faith, believing in the promise, may require an opponent that has to be defeated. And that opponent that has to be defeated might be yourself. It might be a loved one. It might be an attachment. It might be uh, something that you're being convicted of, but you're not yet ready to let go of. It might be any number of things. It might be just simply fear. You've got to let go of fear to trust. And um, anyway, let's, uh, let's evaluate it here. Back to Luke 13 then. Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter. Now, striving and seeking uh, are placed here in parallel. And we're not going to distinguish between them a great deal because I think they're interchangeable. But the... Uh, the uh, tense that gets changed here from present tense to future tense becomes interesting. And the difference between now and then, 
between the present and the future, as far as Jesus' statement here, is that a moment is coming when that door is locked, when the door is shut, when the head of the house gets up and shuts the door. Now, uh, there's, there's, there's elements there. Now, this is to Israel, not to the church, so we don't want to get confused in that. We're going to make a proper dispensational application on that. Nevertheless, we do have our own application on that because of our own imminent event coming up, the rapture. There is a deadline by which if folks come to Christ before the trumpet, then they're a part of the body and bride of Jesus Christ, royal family of God placed in Christ. All the blessings of, of the, the body from uh, rapture to Pente- from Pentecost to rapture, and you understand that. But once that door is shut, and we are called to glory and the, those left behind, uh, someone who gets saved the morning after the rapture, well, guess what? They're not royal family of God. They're not bride of Christ. They're not uh, the uh, the church. They're not in the dispensation of grace in which there is no distinction between Jew or Gentile. They're either believing Jews or believing Gentiles. If they get saved the day after the rapture. They don't receive the universal indwelling of the Holy Spirit. They don't receive a spiritual gift. They don't receive the 36 things that happen to you at the moment of your salvation. They're Old Testament believers at that point. Either believing Jew or believing Gentile. <coughs> and... Uh, too late. See, the body of Christ is complete, and he takes his bride home, and that's his bride. It's a finite number. So we have our own, as I say, that's not what this passage is dealing with, but it's a parallel thought. It's a parallel concept to what this passage is dealing with. This passage is Jesus Christ speaking in a Jewish context about this coming kingdom and about Jews who are going to miss out on their own promised kingdom. See, once the head of the house gets up and shuts the door and you begin to stand outside and knock on the door, you know, knocking on the door, let me in, let me in, let me in. You say, well, what about the verse that says, to him who knocks it will be opened, to him who seeks they shall find, to him who asks he shall receive. Put both of those passages in their proper context and you recognize they're both true. They don't contradict. They're both true. But understand that the Seeking has to be while he's near, while he may be found. The knocking has to be while it's still available. The ask and receive has to be within the boundaries of the parameters of what God establishes because the time is coming up. And then, sorry, you had your chance. All right. We'll uh, outline that here in a moment as well. First of all, don't forget the metaphor is Jesus Christ. He is the door. There is no other way to the Father. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes comes unto the Father but by me. John chapter 10, verses 7 and 9. I am the door. I am the door. If any human being thinks that he can uh, achieve glory apart from Christ, he's wrong. And if uh, you're mocked for it and hated for it and condemned for it, You realize this is a faithful Bible message, and yet it is hated by our multicultural pluralistic society that tells you that, oh, there's many paths, there's many ways. Yeah, the Bible's okay for you, but 
you know, for somebody else, maybe it's Buddhism. Maybe it's Islam. Maybe it's... Please, truth is always exclusive. Always. It's illogical to think that there's multiple ways. Absolutely illogical. It's much more natural to accept, no, there has to be one provision. Why? Because there's only one fall. Adam fell and all of humanity was plunged into the lost estate. There is one cause for the fall itself. In Adam all die. So if there's one condition that has to be redeemed, how many solutions to that issue need there be? Just one. In Christ all are made alive. And the, the insanity of saying, you know what? If, uh, if good, you know, devout, well-intentioned, kind, nice Buddhists can go to heaven, well then, God could have saved His Son. There's no need for the virgin birth. No need for the cross. No need to sacrifice His Son. No need to pour out wrath on the Son that He loved from all eternity. He could just keep His Son there in glory and say, alright, we'll just let these well-intentioned, kind, good Buddhists work their way here. These good Muslims work their way here. These good whatever. It doesn't have to be a hundred ways to glory. If there's only one alternative, the Father would just say, okay, we'll go do that. But the fact of the cross tells you that there was no other way for it to be accomplished. There was no other way for humanity to be redeemed. <clears throat> Jesus is the door. Think of it this way. This is what I always use when I debate with people. Truth is always exclusive. Lies are always multiple. Any statement, any statement of truth is exclusive. All right? See, I'm wearing a blue shirt. True statement. Truth is exclusive. Now, what lies might I come up with? Hey, I'm wearing a red shirt. I'm wearing a yellow shirt. I'm wearing a white shirt. I'm, uh, I'm not wearing a shirt. I'm, you know, think about it. What lies can I say about my shirt? I can stay from here till midnight making up new lies about my shirt. There's no shortage of lies. The lie is always multiple. The truth is always exclusive. And so when it comes to our adversary, who's the liar and the father of lies, and how he stands opposed to the truth, where Jesus Christ says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, what do you have right there? You've got the whole illustration of what I'm talking about. Salvation is narrow. The narrow gate and few that find it. But broad is the path that leads to destruction. Many there are that go there too. John chapter 10, verses 7 and 9. <clears throat> this is where he talks about the uh, shepherd and the stranger. And a lot of teaching here in this chapter. But Jesus said to them again, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved. That's the question here. They asked, is it just a few that are being saved? It's a salvation context to his message here in Luke 13. Understand, I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved. He will go in and out and find pasture. And we taught that already back uh, some time ago. 
Jesus is the door into salvation. Now, and we'll come back to this next week because I'm out of time. Present striving. And by that I mean the verb agonizomai is a present tense imperative. Present striving is contrasted with a future seeking. And by that I mean that the verb zeteo in that verse is used as a future indicative. Present striving is contrasted with a future seeking. And that's the contrast. And the imperative is strive now. Strive now. Is it difficult? You bet. But strive now because of the imminency of what happens for those that are shut out. Present striving is contrasted with future seeking. And this is where the language, and well, like I say, we'll come back to it next week, but the language may not be comfy for you because you may come from a theological background that says, well, there's none who seeks after God. No, not one. Yeah, that's a true verse. There is none who seeks after God. But this verse says there are some who seek after God. So we're going to pick and choose and say, well, I believe this one and that one's a lie. Are we going to say, no, this one's true and that one's true. And let's place each of them in their proper scope and understand it. Also, that future sinking, that future seeking. I'm not, I'm not I'm going to, this is horrible. I hate myself for doing this. But look at this. Okay, I don't hate myself that much. You're going to, you think about this in the coming week. Okay. That future seeking has a promised inability. A promised inability in the future. Again, there's folks that would tell you that, that uh, no one seeks. Well, these guys do. And the future seeking will not be able. But see, presently, there is ability. Because he says strive. Agonize. Strive to enter. Presently, strive. In the future, they won't be able. What does that mean about the present? Okay, they are able. Strive to enter. The ability is present. In the future, it won't be. Well, why is the ability present now? In the future, why won't it be? And say, wait a minute, wait a minute. My theology book tells me that no one is able now. There is no ability now. If you've been a part of our soteriology classes in PMW... um, You recognize what the thinking is on this. All right, so present striving is contrasted with future seeking. Future seeking has a promised inability. And the inability is not intrinsic to the constitution of the person involved. It's intrinsic to the plan of God that has shut that door. So we'll we'll deal with that as well. All right, thank you, Father. Thank you for this day. Thank you for this class and our time together. Uh, you've given us a lot to chew on. I pray that we'll chew on it. We'll chew on it and digest it and and uh, search the Scriptures, see if these things are so. Father, I thank you that no believer here is just uh, enthralled by uh, the glories and wisdom and greatness of their pastor and swallows everything that comes out. Father, every believer here searches the Scriptures diligently, sees if these things are so. And I thank you for that. And I thank you in Christ's name. Amen.